Welcome to episode 15 of Welcome. My name is Kareem Kanji. We are recording uh, tonight in Girth Radio Studios at Pacific Junction Hotel, Game 6 of the American League Championship Series between the Toronto Blue Jays and the Kansas City Royals. Today, my guest is Steve Hulford. I've known Steve for about five years. Uh, we met when he was uh, leading file mobile, uh, and he's done some amazing things in his life, everything from winning swimming competitions back in university uh, to making documentaries um, in Indonesia. And I uh, hope uh, you guys enjoy this conversation. Thanks for joining us. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. Um, there's a lot to talk about, so we follow each other on yeah. like Facebook and Twitter. Exactly. And uh, one, I know there's two things that you're, I don't know if passionate about, but you got opinions on, for sure. Um, and these are, t- I don't know which one is sort of more important, but I guess long term, probably the most important thing was the election. The election. That we just had. Yes, I have some opinions your, on that. Your thoughts on, your, th- your thoughts on, I guess the past almost 10 years. The start past ten years, yeah. Let's, let's politics. Yeah, yeah. Your thoughts on what's been happening in the country, politics, some of the policies, and some of the, I don't know, the rhetoric, the decisions, the the conversations that have been ha- happening. That's a long period of time. Um, so we're talking the 2005 to 2015 period. So I mean that that's that's the conservative government. Um, yeah, I, I I think on one hand is a businessman you know during that time i've worked on three different startups sold two of them shut one of them down and have benefited from some of the taxes and policies of the conservative government yeah the uh capital gains exemptions and and things such as that uh at the same time i'm and these were policies that were not in place prior? They were enhanced by okay. the conservative government. Yeah. Um, but I am on the same side. I'm, I'm a socially liberal person. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I've, I've never, I have not liked at all the, some of the, the, the rhetoric of the conservative government. Um, a, a lot of the, um, the, the, the dialogue and discussion, the, the, the muzzling of scientists the, the the lack of transparency in the way they run their their um, their, their government their policies um, and the hypocrisy and I've really been looking for a, a change for a very long time like a lot of people and through that same time we've lived through the Rob Ford years here oh in Toronto my. yeah and I, you know it's interesting when on, on election night. Um, I posted something on my Facebook page. Maybe that's what you're referring to. Was in Harper's speech after losing the election, he talked about conservative values, and he kind of defined them for everybody. 
And I wrote down that he'd mentioned taxes and saving taxes five times. I remember the post of yours, yeah. He he mentioned um, the troops, supporting the troops a couple of times, and he mentioned trade. Yeah. And I, I really think that the supporters of the conservative government and the way he defined the cons- th- their policies, it's it, it's about saving tax dollars. And yeah. I, and, I, and I said in my post, that's not how you build a society. It's very different, isn't it? it there's the one hand where someone like yourself who's built companies, and is that the same sort of approach uh, of sort of building a country or – yeah, really building a country, I guess, right? You continually build, right? Um, it was interesting because even with the form, former mayor Ford, it was like, I've run businesses. And I've always thought that's great, and there's probably some skills, and I'm sure there are some skills that you can bring to politics. But you know, building a city, building a province, uh, building a country takes more than just business know-how. Right, because absolutely, you absolutely. know, it's 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 sort of like, you know, in in your home, there's there's home economics, there's making sure that you're not living above your means, but then there's also times when you've got to say, you know what, we've got to cut a little bit here, but we've got to invest here. I got to make sure, you know, you have children. I got to make sure that my children have the best, you know, yeah, um, well, I mean, good shoes, but best education, you know. So you're always sort of choosing there, and it's not always about the dollar bill, is it? No, it's not. I mean, you can't. I think even with a company, you cannot. You got to focus on the troops. You got to keep people happy. You have. Yeah. Um, you want to inspire people to come to work every single day. You need to mind your finances, I, and I, that's absolutely unequivocally something you have to do. But you really want to inspire people to come to work, or you want to inspire the nation to. Uh, to, to do a better job in, in, in all the things that they're doing. And that, that's not something that resonates with me when it's all about tax dollars and saving tax mm-hmm. dollars. Um, plus the attack ads that we saw from the, the conservatives in the last 75 days. Uh, and I, you, you didn't see that uh, on the liberal side. Um, the NDP um, doing some attack ads as well. I just, I don't like that. And I, I think I think they're out of touch with the electorate, and clearly they were. I think you got a lot of mm. strategic voters that kind of pulled the liberals in. Yeah, I think they got the marijuana vote. <laughs> yeah, well. I mean, there's something like uh, 28% of Canadians are pot smokers. Really? And wow. When when um, you know when uh, Trudeau said he was going to legalize pot, I think that you saw a lot of people there. No, you don't hear a lot of the media talking about the marijuana vote, but th- these are people that a maybe weren't voting, were voting for other parties, and then jumped in and, and Interesting. voted for Interesting. I never Trudeau. thought of that as sort of a rallying point. I think it was. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, it, it's, I, I was quite happy with the outcome of the election. Um, I think it's, it's nice to see some of the thing we're going to start to – we're taking the troops out of uh, – we're stopping bombing in, yeah. in the Middle East. You know, He's revisiting B Bill C. Is it fifty one? I C think C forty one or fifty one. Yeah, I think they're going to revisit that. Yeah, um, there's a lot of a uh, lot of work to be done to to peel back some of that. Yeah, he's already in talks to bring in twenty five thousand Syrian refugees. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's fantastic. That's good to see. And I, I, I think this uh, you know in the in the last couple of months the the um, 
the order that he put in of um, around barbaric cultural practices Mm. and putting a hotline in place to report barbaric cultural practices, I I felt like it was like, what? country am I Was that a desperate move? Sort of, a lot of things seemed desperate to me. It did. He he was, there is a real, in in the conservative group, there is a real, there, I I think he was playing to his base, which I don't know why he needs to do that. He already has those votes. I think it was desperation, absolutely. Yeah, it was, I'm every day hearing ads on the radio, I'll talk to you tomorrow, this is Monday. Six more days until the election, or you know, there was that. There was the uh, the fundraiser or the party with the Fords close to the end. Yeah, um, that sort of seemed desperate. You know, maybe maybe, uh, maybe Stephen Harper, maybe his you know, ten years ago, five years ago, he had a really strong team around him. A lot of those guys left. Yeah, he had a lot of senior people leave months before. Months and years before. So, you know, I may, maybe they're they're a shadow of their former self. Um, I I don't know, but I, it's it's nice to. I I felt a little bit like 2008 when Obama won on Monday. Interesting, night. interesting. I felt like hope won out over fear. Yeah, and uh, that's always great. Yeah. I, I, it, it, and the Blue Jays won that night. And the Blue Jays. <laughs> It was it was win win. Blue Jays won, and and start in the uh, the latest Star Wars video uh, trailer movie trailer came out, came out as well. So That's I think right. it was it was win win for a lot of people. It was. Um, you talk you talk about the Blue Jays, and before we get there, you know, I'm I'm hoping that the next four years, you know, he's also talking about electoral change. Um, you know, I'm I'm hoping that the next four years is a breath of fresh air, and sort of we see building rather than status quo and the same old same old and, yep. and so far so good but you know let's let's sort of look and see what happens you know, 88 female mps voted yeah. in that's incredible yeah absolutely so i i think uh it's it's exciting mm-hmm. you know I, I think it's really exciting times for canada uh, i've been doing a lot of international travel this year and uh canada has a you know a great brand we're known around the world um for a lot of the values that I think that um, Trudeau's been talking about, you know, we're, you know, a peace-loving nation, hardworking, um, produce a lot of great culture, whether it's music, comedy. There's a great startup scene in, in Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto. Yeah, right here as well. Waterloo. Mm-hmm. Um, Toronto is an exciting place, and, and you know, I, I think uh, – I like to attribute a lot of my success to this city, Toronto. And, awesome. And, yeah, it, it just the the, creati- the creativity in this town is unmatched. It yeah, really and is. And I want to get to that. Uh, let, let's talk about uh, both of us are wearing Blue Jays shirts. That's right. Uh, tonight is Game Six of the American League Championship Series. We're hoping that there's a Game Seven. And we're hoping that I can use my tickets to Game One of the <laughs> Did World Series. I bought I bought tickets for me and, and, and my son to go. Fantastic! And uh, I'm I'm hoping that I could use them. Yes. You know uh, that that would be a great treat I think for him and for me. I've never been to a postseason game, so uh, this will be exciting times. But it's exciting times in Toronto for the Blue Jays as well. Wow! Um, very interesting season. It began with um, two trades. Sorry, one trade and one acquisition. So we got um, we got uh, Josh Donaldson, 
uh, trade a third baseman with the uh, Oakland Athletics. That's right. And uh, we acquired uh, Russell Martin, free agent deal there. And things started off amazing, and then all of a sudden in March, uh, Marcus Stroman goes to field the bunt, and what is it, breaks his ACL, tears his Tore ACL? Tore his ACL, that's Tore right. his ACL. You, and for, I rem- you forgot another, another trade in there, because mm. we got rid of Adam Lind. Adam Lind for? Marco Estrada. That's right. Which, man, does that seem like a good deal. Yeah, it was, it was sort of, <laughs> let's get rid of this guy who's unhappy uh, and whose mother sort of tells him his, his medical diagnosis. And, uh, yeah, we, you know, we, you're right. We do forget uh, about that move. Would you take Lynn for Estrada? I don't know. I, I, I mean, back then, I guess you would. Yeah, I mean, Estrada gave up the most home runs in the major leagues last I, year. That, yes, he did. That's right. Uh, but it was interesting. I also read somewhere that uh, Alex Anthopoulos has been after him for three years. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah. So, um, you know, he does it. He, he always gets who he wants. Even Jose Reyes, um, yeah. who started with the Blue Jays this year, is someone that Alex Anthopoulos had, had wanted for a long time. Um, but he's not afraid to give up, you know, what he's wanted for, for something better. And, and they got that with, uh, uh, I guess, on the fielding side, uh, for, for sure. With uh, Troy Tulowitzki, who's yeah. uh, when he's healthy, a perennial all-star. It has been an ex- such an exciting season. I was a university student in Toronto in ninety two, ninety three. As as was I, yeah. Ah, and uh, boy, like this, it started feeling a lot like ninety two, ninety three. In shortly after the all-star break, with these trades, yeah, and they started winning. They started filling the stands down at Sky Dome. And uh, it was incredible to watch. Just incredible. I, I, I have to say that it brought out the old Blue Jays fan in me. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been following them now probably pretty close for the last three years. Took a little breather there for a while. And this is it's just been incredibly exciting. This team is just amazing. I mean, smashing the, the competition. Clutch wins, clutch hits, clutch home runs. Yeah. Most home runs, uh, the largest... Um, margin between runs scored and runs allowed. Yeah, almost every hitting category. They're leading. And you've yeah. got guys in the top five. Like, it reminds me of that 93 team where you yes. had the Whamco with That's Ricky right. Henderson on the top of it. Man. Yeah, that was uh, – those were great times. And, and I think that and, – and I'm sure it's, you know, this ubiquitous media that we have as well that's sort of driving that, you know, where – you know, back in 92, 93, I remember, you know – being in being in bars and being in um, uh, you know rooms at the university colleges and different things like that, watching the games and celebrating in person with people. Um, and, and this year, it's no matter where you are, you could be at home, you could be in a bar with friends, you could be you know just anywhere with your mobile phone and still be able to not just watch and follow the game. Um, but also, you know, with apps as well. There were no apps back then. Oh, and that Major League Baseball at-bat app is incredible. It's amazing. It is amazing. Yes. And to be able to to then, you know, not just cheer with the person beside you, but to go on to Twitter and to cheer there as well. Oh. You know, know, if, if someone were to listen to this 10 years ago, they would say, what are you talking about, cheering with people in the ether? Yeah, you know, but you know, it's. Um, I think it has enhanced the enjoyment and the excitement of everything that's been happening. Yeah, I've had. Uh, I, I I watch the game. I have at bat on. Yeah, and I have Twitter. 
And I'm usually following on Twitter, like, the latest tweets, mm-hmm. Blue Jays. Um, I'm not interested in the curated stuff. I want to see, like, the raw feed. Of the what fans and, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I'd say, like, 80% of the fans are really positive. Um, there's that 20% that are just, like, why is Gibby doing this? Why, Why is, is Gibby, Gibby doing this? Oh, fire him. Get rid of Gibby. Why did he pull Price after, yeah. you know, 18 straight? Sure, know. sure. Um, but, it, oh, it's been It's easy being uh, being a uh, – um, An armchair general. Yeah, armchair, armchair quarterback, armchair coach, 2020 hindsight, you know, all these all these sorts oh, of things. Yeah. It's easy. It's easy. To do. It's, it's hard when you're there to say, what the heck do you do? You know, you know what, The one thing I, I, I think about is, like, I, and I, I posted this today, is whatever happens tonight, whatever happens Saturday, if the, if the Jays go home, it's been an incredible season. I was going to ask you that, yeah. Uh, it was just an it was incredible season. Um, and, and i got to think Rodgers uh, is sitting there thinking, they've, it's really proven the, the, the case study of if we spend money and get good players who field a winning team, the fans will come out. Everyone That's wondered, right? right? Like. Now, I don't now follow the know. stocks, but I know that Rogers, one of their latest releases, profit or, or whatever quarterlies, uh, came out very, very good. And you yeah, know, I, I wonder I, how much the ball team had to do with that. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. But you know, it's sort of everything's sort of connected, right? It's you know the the ball team that plays on their radio station, that plays on their TV station, um, that is content for their magazine, yeah. that then feeds into uh, advertising for. Not just in stadium, but radio and TV and magazine. It certainly wouldn't have been in their forecast. No, <laughs> I mean, no yeah. Th- their Q3, Q4 is going to look good for sure. You know, and then everyone on their cell phones who is streaming stuff. And the swag that everyone's buying. All, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. No matter what happens uh, tonight or this weekend or over the next two weeks, uh, you know, if everything were to end uh, today – I think we can look back and say this has been an amazing year, a fun year. Thanks for the entertainment. Thanks for the enjoyment. Um, and not we'll get him next year, but it, this was awesome. It was awesome. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. And I, I think uh, I remember back in 92, 93, the big question was, like, Toronto did not have much of a baseball history because our, our, our team had only been around for no, you're right, you know, yeah. 15 years or so at the yeah. time. And it was, can a Canadian team win a World Series? Mm-hmm. And then we did it in 92, and then we repeated in 93. But now what is really cool is that we now have, like, almost 40 years of baseball history in this city. Yeah. And we're, we've got – we're sitting – this team is sitting on the shoulders of those 92, 93 teams. The 85 team that played Kansas City, they're often referencing that. We've got That's this right. deep baseball history now in Toronto. Yeah. With some great teams, like – People are talking about those 92, 93 teams again, like some of the greatest teams uh, that, that were out there, which is really cool. No. It's not a question of can we do it? Of course we can. We've done it before. We've done it before. And they've got the, you know, 162 games regular season, you know, to show that it can be done. Exactly. Right? You know, in the playoffs. But um, I didn't invite you here to talk about the Blue Jays <laughs> or the election. You know, my timing could have been better. We could have done this right after the election or we could have scheduled this after the season. Um, you know, but one of the things that we do here on the on the show is really talk with people that are doing and have done some really interesting things, you know, over the course of their life or their career, um, or or a mishmash. 
uh, you know, but I did, um, I've got a, a huge crack research team back at home. And um, you sort of started off things, I would say, you know, not in terms of, you know, where you were born and everything, but um, I read somewhere that you were a very successful competitive swimmer. That's right. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Like, yeah. where did it, where did that begin? Is that sort of, you know, parents putting you in swimming classes and sort of developed from there? That, that was about 40 pounds ago. That was. <laughs> and uh, no, I, I I grew up. I played all kinds of sports as a kid. Yeah. And I was a terrible student, always distracting the class. That this I was the kid the teacher did not want in the class. Mm. Didn't want to. Ha- they they the wanted class to, clown. The class clown. Yeah. They wanted to pass me to get me Just the get hell out <laughs> of their class. We don't want Steve in here again. And I I remember grade two. I had a box on my desk around my desk so I would not distract the other students. Oh, my goodness. And I, I would just draw graffiti inside it. <laughs> um, so I, I went to a um, – I, I was in and out seeing different uh, psychologists and things like that, wondering, what is oh, wrong wow. with this kid? Okay. And one of them said, you know, he's in these great team sports, but why don't you put him in an in individual sport? And hmm. they said, oh, he likes diving. They, there was no diving team in Waterloo where I grew up, so they put me on a swim team. I love swimming, and I just took to it. And I think it's there's something like meditative about it. when you get in the water hmm. and your body's in the water. Um, it's just like meditation, and I just took to it. I, I became quite successful at it at a young age, and I did it all the way through university until I was t- graduated from university and then ultimately retired from it. I got an awful lot out of the sport. I got to travel the world. I, I, I was able to swim on a couple of national teams. That's I, amazing. Yeah, I w- went to the Pan American Games in '91. Wow. Got to shake Fidel Castro's hand. That was in Cuba, or in Havana, Cuba, in 1991. Wow. Um, and and also uh, built this great network of of people that have now gone on to do amazing things. Um, and actually, as a young kid. I, I, sw- I got to swim with Victor Davis, who Canadian medalist, yeah, yeah. gold, silver, bron- bronze medalist at the '84 Olympics. You guys were on the same team. I was seven years younger than him, and I swam with him in 1986. And I remember as a kid thinking, you know, that guy is a world record holder. Like, I was just around someone who was great, who was the best in the world, and I think a bit of it rubbed off on me. And that, you know, hey. I can be great at something or be good at something. I was never great at swimming. I was good. Yeah. I got to – in university, I won a number of medals, was uh, Athlete of the Year at the University of Toronto. And after I graduated from university, I just realized, you know, man, if I can find something I have the same amount of passion for as swimming and apply that to whatever that is, I'll be successful. So there was no sort of question in terms of – like was there a uh, – an opportunity to continue swimming or was that sort of in Canada at that time, you know, that was sort of what you did until a certain point? I mean, yeah, you could continue doing it. I think, I don't know if it's changed now, but really at that time you do it when you're in university and then there's really not much of an opportunity at at that. Like you you are practically living in poverty as an athlete. Hmm. So unless you, what, some people do. They carry on doing it. Um, for me, I, I, I was mentally done. I wanted to try something else. I was wow. looking forward to doing all the things I never had a chance to do because you really are focused on 
you know, at keeping your body healthy and safe. And I, I wanted to party and see the world. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about uh, Cuba. Um, you know, what was it like back in 91 visiting there? Was it eye-opening? Was, you know, were you sort of, you know, the media saying this about Cuba? And, and, you know, tell me tell me a little bit about that. It was that. an interesting time because you remember, like, the the Iron Curtain came down in 89. Hmm. And yeah. apparently the Cubans had stockpiled meat for about 18 months in preparation for the Pan American Games so that the athletes could eat. Oh, wow. They went without so we could eat. Interesting. Because Russia had cut off Cuba at that time. They, they, couldn't afford, the, they couldn't afford to keep them on. No, they were on their own. Um, we've only learned since that they were really, like, left high and dry. Wow. Um, so they put on, they built these great facilities. Um, I, I remember uh, distinctly that the Cubans all got to go to watch these events for free. And they, I've never Amazing. seen so many people in the stands to see a swimming event. That's all changed since Michael Phelps came on the scene. But back then, sure, we'd have three, 4,000 people every night watching swimming. Uh, and they would cheer. And I distinctly remember one event where the Cuban beat an American in the 200 breaststroke. Yeah. Cuban had never won a gold medal in swimming. Yeah. And they won it. And that was the night Castro was in the stands. Wow. And it was, it was like Bautista's... Home yes. Run <laughs> in game five. Yeah. It was spectacular. And athletes that won golds at the Pan Ams that year, they used to they got an apartment at the village we were all living in. Wow. But at the same time, um, there was a sh- lot of shortages on the island. So, like for example, like there were no toilet seats, um, no pla- no no. Um, we, the Olympic Committee that organized the Pan Am Games brought us toilet seats and bottles of water. And the Cubans all wanted our empty bottles, the plastic bottles. That was, like, mm. really valuable to them. So, an amazing people. We were, we were giving out our plastic bottles of water to them and chiclets. Yeah. The Olympic Committee gave us chiclets, gum, and we would give it out to the kids. They would love it. Um, it, was, it was interesting because, you know, you're 90 miles from, um, from, from uh, – America there. Yeah. I had like an old Sony waterproof Walkman. I, those yellow ones? Yeah. Remember yeah. the yellow yeah, ones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I could pick up radio stations from Key West. Wow. Which I thought was wild. <laughs> so, yeah, it was really interesting. And, of course, you know, it looked run down then. And uh, it, it it looked like, you know, it, it had a great history. And it was um, devoid of advertising. Really, really interesting time. Mm-hmm. Where else have you sort of traveled within that sort of world of swimming? Um, with swimming? Yeah. Um, a, a lot in the Caribbean. Okay. Um, to Europe, all over the United States, every, everywhere there's an airstrip in Canada, practically. Really? Okay. Uh, and, and that, you know, introduced me to really, I think, to traveling. My parents were always taking us places as well. So travel has been a passion of mine, and it's really something I try and do any chance I get. Wow. Now, outside, outside of traveling, it seems that it also helped build your self-esteem in terms of, you know, going from a kid that was told, you know, just stop bothering people to, you know, somebody who is traveling the world, uh, representing their country and, and, and winning medals and winning Athlete of the Years. Yeah, definitely. I think it, it did something for my self-esteem. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I've got my kids in sport. 
my wife and I, and we've got our kids in sport. And I think sport does that to people. It gives you self-esteem. It also keeps you distracted in your <laughs> teenage years from getting, other things. In, getting in trouble and other things. Exactly. Yeah. We're trying, we're, we're, we've got our son in, in activity in the sports to keep him distracted away from the screens. Yes. You know, the TV, the wow. laptops. Yeah, the, we never uh, had that when we were kids, no. did we? Something else to think about nowadays, yeah. isn't there? It's hard. It's hard. Like, I... I'm always trying to stop myself from looking yeah. at the bloody screens. So you were you were put into swimming to sort of keep you occupied, um, to sort of give you something to to work at. Um, how do you approach that with your kids? You know, why? What's the sort of impetus to get them into sports? Uh, well, I think it's it, it's I had such a good experience through sport. Um, you know, taught you how to win, taught you how to fail, taught mm-hmm. you how to work hard. It taught you that you know, if you work hard, you'll succeed. All, all those lessons that actually really apply to life. Uh, so there was never any doubt that we put our kids in sport. It was just a question of what, and really they picked the what. Yeah. My, I always I tried lots of different sports, and um, you know, I was I was a reasonably good baseball player. I loved baseball. Um, and I really took to swimming and kind of ended up dropping all the others. But in, sure. in my son's case, he's into soccer. He's into hockey. He, he wants to play baseball. My daughter is a competitive swimmer. Oh, wow. Yeah. Learning from dad. Learning from dad. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> nice. Um, now, you and you're also, I w- touch, wanted to touch on one other thing. Um, you, you've, you started something a number of, I don't know if it's very recent or a number of years ago. But the Toronto Island Lake Swim. Yeah, that's right. Tell me about that. Oh, that's interesting. So um, I, I guess it was about four years ago at a, at a good friend's stag party Okay. up in the Muskokas. Uh, it was like literally a bunch of guys sitting on a dock pointing across a lake with several beers in them saying, you know, let's swim across there. And we were all ex-swimmers. Okay. I was going to <laughs> And I never liked swimming in a lake when I was a kid. And you know how sometimes you have these old fears that, yeah, you, that you have? That, I totally get that. That you developed it as a child, that you just assumed you still had as an adult. And I looked at the lake, and it's dark. The water's dark. And I remember I, I thought I had a fear of that. But when I dove in the water and I swam across the lake, I realized that fear is gone. Wow. Um, the only fear I have is something happened to my wife and kids. I'm not scared of the dark. Mm-hmm. Or what's down there? In fact, I was even intrigued. So, swimming across the lake, um, we we said to each other, "Why can't we do this in Toronto?" Yeah. So when we got back to Toronto, we thought, "Like, hey, let's let's hook up and find a place to swim." I went on Google Earth and I found this amazing place on the south end of Toronto Island, from Ward's Island to the Center Island Pier. You could see the bottom on Google Earth. You could see that it was shallow and there looked to be no vegetation. Uh, so my, my good friend of mine, Bill Poole, and I, uh, it was September 2012, we went out to Ward's Island. Yeah. It was like September 17th or something like that. I'd been out swimming the week before, and mm-hmm. it was warm. It was like 18, 20 degrees. This day, it was like 12, 13, <laughs> 14. We've since learned that the lake yeah. is very fickle, and it can turn. Really? In one day... It'd be 22 the next day. It's seven. Wow. We've seen it because it's so deep and you get a lot of wind on the surface. It just rolls the water column over. The cold water comes up and oh. it goes from 22 to seven in one day. Interesting. 
Um, so we swam from Ward's Island to the Center Island Pier. It's 2.2 kilometers. And we thought other people probably want to do this. And we created the Toronto Island Lake Swim to, to get people out in the lake swimming. Um, the first year we did it, we had 225. Wow. Yeah. Using social media, just yeah. marketing it on Facebook. Uh, the second year we had two, 270. The third year, 285. Yeah. It's, it's, we've discovered it's very dependent on the water temperatures and the air temperatures. Um, we tapped into basically a lot of triathletes and mm. competitive swimmers and recreational swimmers that discovered they want to come out and swim in the lake. And Toronto used to actually have um, open water swimming in Toronto. It was a big thing from like 1900 to 1950. It was a huge sport. Like I'm talking in, in the 20s and 30s, the CNE would put up prize money of around $150,000. And they would have a marathon. And the, the prize money would go to the winner. Wow. And Foster Hewitt would be on the radio dictating this to Canada. Calling the swimming races. Calling the swimming races at the CNE. Um, it was a big deal. Like, we're talking, uh, there's a guy named Cliff Lumsden um, who won a lot of these swimming races up into the 50s. His daughter, Kim Lumsden, has crossed Lake Ontario a couple times. He, he made probably the equivalent of, like, half a million to a million dollars doing doing swimming. Wow. And they would have crowds of 300,000 people on the breakwater when they when they finished their race. So we kind of tapped into that. Like, this used to be a big deal. The lake yeah. got polluted. Sure. It's not as yeah, polluted right. anymore. We partnered up with a great organization called Waterkeepers. They're, they're, jo- they're basically the stewards of Lake Ontario. They fund fish habitat studies, water quality testing, and they're whistleblowers on industry. It's a great match. And, and together we basically uh, That's gonna, fantastic. Yeah, we do this. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's really, really good. There, there's a lot of very interesting things happening in the city in terms of communities like this, whether it is, uh, you know, swimming out in the lake in the islands. Last weekend I was at Morningside Park. They had the uh, the salmon run there, and there was over 1,000 people, wow. you know, taking tours of Morningside Park and the, and the river that flows in it, not just to see the salmon run, uh, but to also, you know, learn about ecology and learn about the history of Toronto and the water, you know, ways and things like that. So, oh, Toronto is—it's yeah. just incredible what is going on in this town. Yeah, it is unparalleled, I think, ar- around the world. There's a lot of cities that are have huge creative classes. Like, I, I hear amazing things about Berlin. You can see it in London. You can see it in New York. But I think what's going on in Toronto is really quite special. Yeah, and I think we, you know, you and I met a number of years ago. Yeah, that's right. As a result of. You know, your really your work uh, in the quote unquote creative class, I guess you would call it. Um, you know, you you know when we had met, you you were doing some work with a company called File Mobile. Um, you know, uh, user generated content and helping um, online publishers to crowdsource. You know, this content and really building a, a, a an engine for them to be able to do that. Um, but even you know before that, you know, I guess if we were to talk about your Life after swimming and after school, um, you know, started off at Big Blue. Is, is that correct at IBM? Yeah, I, I started my. I actually right after school, I, I went out and made a documentary film in Indonesia. Yes, that's right. That, that's what I did. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk to me. I remember reading that. Yeah, 
And, yeah. you, and you sold it to a Canadian and a U.S. That's right. We sold it to the Travel Channel, the Outdoor Life Network. Um, the same guy, uh, Bill Poole, I'm doing the open water swim race with, um, was one of the guys. Okay. Greg Prince, another guy who was an investor in File Mobile. Catherine McKenna, who was just voted MP in Ottawa Centre. Oh, wow. Uh, was also in that group. So the four of us backpacked from Jakarta to Flores, almost to Timor. And we basically just recorded our experiences we had along the way uh, on on the best gear we could buy at the time. Did and you guys know, hey, let's make a quote-unquote documentary? Or was yeah. it like, let's go and travel and just film it anyway? No, the plan was, was always to make a documentary. Okay. Yeah. I uh, The plan was to make a documentary and backpack through the, that part of Indonesia. And we, we called it um, 60 Days in Indonesia. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then the series was going to be called Real Travels. My original idea was I wanted to get paid to travel the world. And I We mean, all want that, don't yeah, we? Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. That's, <laughs> I came out of school. I'm like, I want to get paid to travel the world. I failed miserably at that. Okay. Although this year. This year you, you've I, done some stuff I've this been This year I've been paid to travel the world. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, so when, I, when we finished that documentary, um, IBM actually hired me. And then well, I wait, 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 get, let's get, let's get back to the documentary. Yeah. I, I, that's because I remember when when we had met. I just put it on YouTube actually about oh, three okay. or four months ago. The Indonesia movie. Yeah. Okay. It so looks quite dated now. Like it's, <laughs> it's twenty years old, and yeah. it looks. 40 Will we years recognize old. you? You won't recognize me, but <laughs> you know, it's, you know, you look at the '93 Blue Jays clip of Carter hitting the home run, and you look at it, and you're like, "What? That looks like it looks like." Like a video of the Wright brothers, it looks weird, eh? Their uniforms were strange. But you could you look at the resolution of the picture, the resolution, square, ugly green carpet that they played on. You you can't even make the ball out traveling, and it's like, wow. But they were so awesome. But anyways, um, how how was that experience in Indonesia? It was. I, I, you know, it's it, it's kind of a cliche. I, I say I went there. I like I had backpacked through se- for seven months through Asia, and then met up with these guys, and we made the documentary in Indonesia. Um, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Really? I I, I would put it up there with uh, yeah, running these startups with my partners and uh, selling them. It was hard. Like, you know, you you were um, you know every day. We, you know, we had. We had different roles, the four of us. We weren't sure what we were doing. It's kind of like Heart of Darkness. Like, we never had an ending. We didn't know how this thing was going to end. We just kept going, and we had some crazy experiences that we never caught on film that that, uh, I wish we had, but uh, we were under so much stress that we just couldn't record. At at one point... um, was it like stress between all of you? Like oh, fighting? Yeah. Oh. oh, we were fighting at times. Yeah. Generally, we all got along. Um, but, you know, you put four people... After 60 days. <laughs> yeah, f- four people, back, you know, in 60 days around Indonesia. One time we were traveling from Flores back to Bali, and it was like about a three-day journey. And we yeah. had buses from one island to the next. And we discovered that our ending, which was the the multicolored lakes of Kelimutu, yeah. um, our ending had been recorded over. We recorded over our Oh, ending. my goodness. <laughs> and we discovered that on a bus ride somewhere around Sumbawa. And I remember Indonesians didn't travel very well on buses. So you get them on a bus, and they'd be just throwing up everywhere. So there's hours really? of this. And then you, 
It's hot. Everyone's throwing up. And then we've discovered we recorded over. And I think I tried to strangle Greg Prince, my good friend who recorded it. And um, <laughs> and then when we got to Lombok, all our bags came off the bus with one missing. And this ba- this bag had 40 hours of recorded tape. Oh, my goodness. We recorded like 100 hours. We recorded everything. One, two, this bag didn't come off. It had our underwater camera housing. It had 40 hours of tape and some running shoes, and it didn't come off the bus. We were in this busy bus station in um, Chaknagara, Lumbok, and Bill um, literally started strangling the interpreter that was telling us that the bag had been taken off two islands east um, to put a bag of rice on and that we would it, it was going to come tomorrow. And we had got to learn that, you know, an agitated Westerner in Indonesia would just be placated by someone telling them what you wanted to hear. And that was what was going on at the bus station that day. And we thought, there's no way we're going to ever see that bag again. Uh, we thought the whole thing's over. We're done. And we came back the next day, and there's the bag. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And they're, <laughs> they're, they're such amazing people, the Indonesians. Uh, they, 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 nothing was taken. And, and there it was. And, but, and uh, there, we had lots of moments like that all the time. It just try you. And then, of course, we got back to Toronto, edited the whole thing together, um, and then tried to sell it. You know, and you did. We did. Yeah, we sold it. It took three years to sell it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We, well, we you had to, I guess you had to edit it and put everything together, right? We had it done. We okay. actually had, like, back then, do you remember movie television? Yes. We had a release party, January 2000, 1996. Um, movie television came out, and it was part of their show, and nothing happened. Oh, my um, we, we took it to uh, people to try and sell it, try and tell the series idea. And they're like, what did you shoot it on? We said, high eight. They said, oh, you, we can't put high eight on television. Hmm. Um, and it, obviously now, that was, like, that was like early reality TV, right? Yeah. Um, user-generated TV. No surprise I wound up doing user-generated content. Um, they, p- people wouldn't air it. But then by 1999... We had much more experience in the TV business, and we knew people, and we managed to tell, sell it to um, Dave Purdy, now of Rogers, was running the Outdoor Life Network. That name is very familiar, yeah. Yeah, he's a senior vice president over at Rogers today, and he purchased it from for Outdoor Life Network and put it on television, and we sold it to the Travel Channel in the States through a distributor here in Toronto. Nice. Yeah, it was fun. Now, you, you also, did you do something similar to that in Jamaica? No. Like, did you feel? I, I remember chatting with you, but you filming something or, or something. In you're you're talking, I think, about a trip I took to Jamaica in 2010 mm-hmm. with a bunch of guys. It was our 40th birthday, and we met Brother Lion in the the jungles of Reach Falls. Okay. Yeah, I think that's what you're talking. Yeah. About. Yeah. But no, no sort of filming or recording of that. Well, there was a recording actually. It was a kind of a cool experience. We. You know, people, ha- you have these experiences all the time when you're traveling. You meet interesting people. And we'd been in a place called Reach Falls on the east coast of Jamaica. If, the, if Reach Falls was near Kingston or near Montego Bay, it would be a lot like Dunn's River Falls. Okay. And ruined, right? Oh, too many people. Full of tourists. Yeah. It'd be very touristy. Here, this is like completely virgin, beautiful place. And we went 
hiking in there, and then we came out, and we met Brother Lion, this really strapping, strong Rastaman, standing on the side of the street, and he was cutting open coconuts. And, it, like, that's – we were dying of thirst. We guzzled down the coconut juice, and um, we were playing at the time Canaan's Waving Flag. Oh, wow, yeah, To, yeah. to all the Jamaicans, because yeah. they hadn't heard it yet. Sure. Um, and – that's the thing about Jamaicans. Everyone there is into reggae, and everyone's a record producer. And when they hear Canaan's Waving Flag, they're like, that's a big song. Uh, we kept hearing that, big song, man. Yeah. Big song. <laughs> and um, Brother Lion heard it, and he said he's a reggae singer. Yeah. And so he he played a couple songs for us, one of which, Marco De Felice, who's a music producer here in Toronto. Okay. Uh, he recorded it on his iPhone. And this guy says, yeah, you know, tourists come. They've seen me. I've never made any money from it. I'm on YouTube. Um, and so we went back to Toronto, and Marco um, initiated all this. He laid the track down from his iPhone, mm-hmm. and he got, like, a six-piece band, and he produced it into an incredible song, like like a produced song. Yeah. We put that on iTunes, connected it to his bank account in Jamaica, and then started promoting it. We built a website called BrotherLion.com, made a Facebook page, and um, I spoke about it at conferences. And Marco has since placed that song in a number of commercials. Wow. Um, We've sold three or 400 tracks of it on iTunes. Um, (laughs) And I've made Brother Lion like $3,000 $4,000 since then. Nice. Yeah. Pretty cool experience. That's awesome. That's actually that's an amazing a, story. Yeah, it was a good, uh, very, you know, you wonder sometimes you, ha- you if you stopped and and did something like that each time you met someone interesting. It's a bit what the documentary was about, too. Is yeah. Recording interesting experiences that happened to you. Um, let's skip over the IBM stuff. <laughs> so let's let's talk about... Sportsnet, because you were very early there. I don't know what came first, Sportsnet or you. Uh, I I was at Sportsnet when it launched. Okay. In ninety eight. Now, what what were you doing there? What was your role? I, w- I I was hired actually as the hockey researcher. Okay. Yeah. I uh, there's a guy named Scott Moore. I I had an opportunity yeah, yeah. in nineteen ninety. Was it ninety two? I had an opportunity to work at the Olympic Games in Barcelona. Amazing. Yeah, it was incredible. It was an incredible experience. This was with Rogers. This was CTV actually aired the 92 Olympics in Barcelona. And through a couple swimming friends of mine, John Brutfeldt, Dr. Greg Wells, um, we were basically hired. We told them we have airfare paid already. We're going to be over in Barcelona. Give us a job. And they said, sure, you're hired. Jeez. (laughs) I don't think they knew what the hell they were going to do with us. But we turned out to be pretty good at um, my job there was really just sort of like I, I was I worked at the swimming pool. I basically, you know, wor- helped Byron McDonald do com- like on the commentary. I would run, get stuff, coffee, results, talk to the swimmers, whatever it was. And I learned a bit about the TV production. And I learned I'm like, I want to be part of this. This is exciting. And that was 92. Um, 
Scott Moore, who was the producer of the 92 Olympics, um, got me some jobs in 94, making baseball highlights at TSN. Hmm. And when they started up Sportsnet, I was actually working uh, at IBM and wanted to get out of IBM and was going to reach out to Scott Moore. And funny enough, I was at like a grocery store up in the Muskoka somewhere. And I was, I think I had a, we were picking up groceries for a boys weekend at a cottage and I turn around, there's Scott Moore and Dean Bender. Hmm. Those two guys still work together. Um, Dean's been the sort of uh, head creative of Sportsnet and a lot of these sports broadcasts. And uh, Scott, hey, and he said, "What are you doing?" I said, oh, "I'm at IBM." Or, and um, he said, "Well, he opened the door, said, come see me.'" So I did. Sure. <laughs> and I, I had no, I, I did not have many. Like I didn't have, I never went to school for TV production or like that. So they didn't really know what to do with me. Scott says, um, "You know, hey." We're, we got a job as a hockey researcher. You know, the first game was October 9th. I still remember this. It was the New York Rangers. No, I can't remember who they were playing. <laughs> I can't still remember this. So this was 1998, October 9th, Sportsnet's first hockey game. He said, do a research pack for that. And I basically sat down, and I pulled an all-nighter, and I came in. I dropped off, I think, the Monday morning, like an 80-page package of research. Oh, my goodness. And gave it to him, and he hired me. Awesome. So I did that, and while I was there, um, I, I got really interested in Internet technology, and I'd, I'd learned quite a bit of um, basic technical um, understanding of the web and Internet and some took some engineering courses at IBM. And I, 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 want, I, I helped them launch uh, Sportsnet.ca, um, it was actually called ctvsportsnet.ca at yeah, the time. Yeah, And I was hired as the video streaming guy. We were doing live streaming of Sports Central. Uh, every morning I would get up and record Sports Central, put it live on television, or sorry, on the web. On the web, yeah. And people could stream it uh, in their browser. This must have been one of the earliest streamings. Yeah, it wasn't live streaming. It was using the real player, and it was yeah. – I would basically record it, edit it, ah, and okay. then upload it, okay. and then it could stream. So yeah, you, you okay. could watch it like an hour after it aired. That's amazing. Uh, and I did that. Um, what was interesting about that, too, was uh, we were working with a company that helped build that website mm -hmm. called um, Digital Renaissance. They later became Extend Media. Uh, down in Liberty Village. And they actually found an opportunity to package up sports highlights into an interface that allowed you to build a playlist of videos and play it back. So you could say, hey, I want to watch the the Blue Jays highlight. I want to watch the Mets highlight. I want to watch the Raptors. And you'd sit and watch these three videos. So I was transcoding all those videos and uploading them into this interface for the Intel Web Outfitter service. Hmm. And... Intel was paying Sportsnet for that. You know, fast forward, I had a, I had a week off, and it was 1999. It was early 2000. I had a week off, and I flew out to San Francisco to see uh, a buddy of mine, and I decided to look up a company while I was there that I really loved what they were doing. It was called Quokka Sports. Okay. And Quokka is something my father introduced me to. They actually, they did... 
round-the-world yacht racing. They covered that by basically taking the, the mass of the boats and pinging the mast, giving your XY coordinates, and then plotting that on a map. So for the first time, you could actually watch round-the-world yacht racing in real time through a flash map, and you could see the boats. They were different colors. They were sending audio dispatches back from the boat. Oh, wow. This is like 1998, 1999. They covered the entire ex, uh, Everest expedition, the climbing season of Everest. And this would have been 99. And the, when, the brow, like, when the browser loaded, the, the actual interface was a massive JPEG of Everest. Now, it, this, like, you know, kids will listen to this. And go, I can see an actual person climb Mount Everest if I wanted to. Or I could actually, you know, see pictures of space. But this is like, this is early, early days. Early and, days, yeah. You know, this is amazing. It was. And the actual interface of the website was you basically, the web, the gi- giant JPEG loaded. And then you would see the route of all the different climbers. You could scroll down to Base Camp, which was at the bottom of the page. Yeah. You could click on different climbers. You could get audio dispatches from them. You could see text from them. You could get their blood pressure, pulse, and, and, and different wow. things like that. They called it immersive sports. Yeah. And then they started doing that for NBCOlympics.com. And this is Quokka. 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 Quokka is a little marsupial from Australia, and it's an oh, Australian okay. company, second Australian company in my life. <laughs> um, this was the first. And they were doing some amazing stuff. They And they were aggregating and buying up these companies. This was a company that probably had like a three or $400 million market cap. Um, of course, it all came unraveling and went belly up. But mm. I still think what Quokka was doing at the time, like the work they did was on the back of the Flash 4 box. Like mm. They were on the cutting edge of stuff. It was amazing to be part of that in San Francisco. Um, I got hired because they were looking for someone to produce, to take all their digital assets, package it up for the Intel Web Outfitter service. Okay. Which is exactly what I was doing at Sportsnet. Yeah. Um, and, and you I, sort of saw this as here's sort of some bleeding edge technology. Yeah. And I, I remember I, I came back from my holiday and my parents said, what did you think of San Francisco? I said, well, it, it's great. I'm going to enjoy living there. <laughs> and then uh, I, I think I almost tripled my salary, like if you did the conversion in Canadian dollars. And I moved out there. Um, never made uh, any money off the dot-com riches, but I, I met my wife. There you go. Yeah. Something good always comes out of it. Now, how did you – you've also done some some stuff in fantasy sports, both – and I think starting off with Bell. Is, um, that, is that right? It started off with actually um, – Or was that after Bell? I was I was working for TSN, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to think who we were owned by at the time. Um, yes, it was um, it was CTV. That okay. CTV and Bell owned TSN and all the sports properties. This was back in the uh, um, Bell. It was called. I was working for Bell Globe Media. Ah. Bell Globe Media owned. Um, they, they own Globe and Mail, yeah. the newspaper. They own CTV and all of its assets, and um, TSN. Um, and, yeah. I, and I got hired to do uh, the sports net, run the sports network's website and all their sports properties, which included RDS in in in, um, in Quebec. In yeah. Quebec. Um, and I, I I was able to basically um, update the, those websites, add modern, add inventory to it, uh, and we started doing fantasy sports. 
And um, Fantasy Sports did very, very well. We had a great sponsor in Molson, Molson Coors. And with those, um, we, we, we were doing pay-to-play games. Okay. Um, we were doing sponsored games. Yeah. Um, we started to see some good traction on the pay-to-play games. And then there was a bit of a corporate coup. Um, they basically they split up. They, they, they shut down Bell Globe Media Interactive, got rid of all the executives, of which I was one of them, and they took those properties back to the TV owners. Okay. Um, so I found myself out of work. Um, I had a five-month severance package, and about a week before I had left um, Bell Globe Media, um, Molson sat down with me and sat, shared some research with me that said heavy beer drinkers um, are fantasy sports players, and we want to really own that market. Yeah. Um, so I, I actually really lobbied hard uh, to keep fantasy sports with TSN, but they axed it. So I thought, that's my opportunity. And I partnered with a friend of mine, and I, we approached Molson. We said, we got 60 days till the NHL season starts. Let's create a fantasy sports business. What I realized at TSN was, if they ever sponsored TSN only in RDS, they'd only still have 25% market share. But Molson was buying advertising for fantasy sports on Sportsnet, TSN, RDS, Everywhere. Canada.com. They could get 80-90% market share. So we start, we created Molson's first company since Beaver Lumber. Beaver Lumber was a Molson company? It was a Molson company, yeah. The things you learn. Yeah. Uh, and that was that launched in 2003, 2004. And then we started building out CFL. We built out Major League Baseball and a couple other sports. Uh, and that was Fantasy Sports Network, which actually really got me um, – you know, my wings, my entrepreneurial wings. Yeah, because you basically started, you were like a, an entrepreneur, you know, within a larger organization. No, we were very much a, a separate company outside okay. of All right. Molson Coors. And yeah. we partnered with a, a digital agency called Nine Dots at the time, later Henderson Bass, Donna Henderson, great lady uh, who ran that agency, and, and um, Judy Davey at Molson Coors. Um, and we... Um, yeah, we ran Fantasy Sports Network until 2008 when we ultimately shut it down. Uh, but one of the last things we did before we shut it down, uh, we had the trademark name FSN, and we were ahead of Fox Sports Network. Okay. We filed that earlier, and we um, we encouraged Molson to send a cease and desist letter to Fox Sports Network. Sure. And they did on Molson Letterhead saying, stop using our trademark name FSN. And they gave Molson uh, quite a bit of money um, to, to go away. And uh, then we shut Fantasy Sports Network down. And hopefully some of that flowed back to you. Uh, I think it actually paid off the company's debt. Okay. Yeah, we came out of it even. So I think we felt like that was a win. That was a win. Yeah. That is awesome. That is that that is awesome. And when we did meet, I've, I've sort of referenced us, us, us meeting you or um, heading up File Mobile. That's right. Um, and, and I guess, uh, you know, this starts after, maybe not soon after, but, you know, after Fantasy Sports Network. Um, and this was really a company that, and correct me if I'm, if I'm not explaining this correctly, but sort of powered the ability for online publishers to 
um, utilize user-generated content. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. How, now, how did how did this start? Well, th- this was um, there, there was the hockey strike of oh four oh five. Yeah. And we had the fantasy sports business. My my business partner and I also bought another fantasy sports company called Pool Expert, mortgaged our houses, bought this, and then. So we had, I had three internet companies going that we were managing, and but it was 0405. There was the hockey strike. Not much was going on, and I started researching a lot of the technology that was out there. And it was the emergence of Web 2.0, and there was a site that really inspired me, which was Flickr. Yes. And I wanted to build the video of Flick, the video Flickr. Yeah. Uh, this was pre YouTube, and uh, I found these young guys in Amsterdam. And they had all the pieces. I was actually judging. Um, uh, I was I was a judge on in Flash in the Can, which was is now FITC. FIT, that's right. I was judging it, and I saw this amazing work of this group from called Colab out of Amsterdam, and they had all the pieces for what I wanted to do, which was be able to upload videos, transcode them, and then play them back and be able to see them. Because at the time, if you remember, like if you, people emailed you videos, you'd you had to have three different players installed. QuickTime, yeah. Real Player, Windows. Um, by putting it all in Flash in a browser, that problem went away. And I wanted to be able to share it with family and friends and put it on a blog. So I sat down I, I, with some friends of mine, um, and we produced some software specs, Got the, found this team in Amsterdam, built the early prototype of FileMobile.com, and our office, which we were using for fantasy sports down in Liberty Village, was really kind of a creative hub at the time. I, I draw, drew in a lot of friends, and we were constantly looking at some of this technology. Got in a business partner of mine named Chris Becker, great guy, lives in New York now and uh, do, does con- consulting. Um, he became our CEO. Um, my business partner uh, on the fantasy sports side, Ron Watson, we, we got together pooled our cash together and got the first beta out the door in February or March of 2006. And that was called FileMobile.com. It was very much a consumer play. Uh, You could upload, get a gigabyte of storage, upload photos and videos, share them, family and friends. And we started uh, showing it to um, Fantasy Sports Network customers and Pool Expert customers. Nice. Like the Chum, Chum was our first client on FileMobile. Okay. What they saw in FileMobile.com was a way to, to, if we could white label it, they could use it to license it and gather user-generated content from their audience and put it on television and on their websites. So our first project was actually to power the screens at a Virgin Festival on Toronto Island. Mm. And the Music Fest. Yeah, the Music Fest. Yeah. They could upload them um, on their browser or on their phone. And we did a bunch of s- early prototypes and projects for, like, you know, North by Northeast, the Music Festival. Um, it was really a creative time, and there was a lot of opportunity to use these tools. People were starting to take pictures on their phones. Sure. You could e- email them into our system and then show them in a slideshow. And um, through that, we got uh, Molson Coors as a client. We got CBC. Um, we got the Weather Network. That makes sense, yeah. We got CTV, um, and it just started taking off. And 
by 2007, 2008, we were looking for to exit the fantasy sports businesses mm-hmm. so we could focus 100% on file mobile. So we were able to sell PoolExpert.com in July of 08 to Rogers, Rogers Sportsnet, and that was that was a, a, a very nice day, uh, and we were able to shut down Fantasy Sports Network and focus by end of 2009, or end of 2008, 100% on File Mobile. And we continued to sort of sign up media companies around the world. So we've had Wall Street Journal, uh, Gannett, USA Today, brands like JCPenney, newspapers like Seattle, um, Post-Gazette, the... um, uh, Pittsburgh, sorry, Pittsburgh Post Gazette, Seattle Times. Um, we've had uh, CTV, CBC, Global in, in Britain, ITV, Scottish Television, Swiss Television, just a variety of different companies in Australia. Network Ten um, that have licensed this software and then used it to gather, curate, and, and organize user-generated content. And we managed to build that business up. Uh, to as as high as uh, 18 employees at, at its peak, and then ultimately sold that to Nuzulu in February of this year. Yes, or, or tell me about the process of sell of selling File Mobile. You know, was it something that you were looking to do? You wanted to get out? Was there an offer that was too good? Like, what was that process about? Tell me about that. Um, well, we had. Um, we knew that the business needed capital. Uh, it, this type of plat- software platform is is the sort of thing that needed capital, and we had a long discussion with our board. It was either raise money or sell, and the board ultimately decided uh, they wanted to sell. At the same time, we were also going to ramp up sales, so we actually got a loan from uh, the Business Development Bank of Canada. We wanted to accelerate sales and, at the same time, um, try and sell the business. And r- around that same time, um, my, my partner and I were contacted on LinkedIn by um, a man by the name of Alex Hartman. And he, um, w- he met my business partner and decided to come to Toronto. Um, it turns out Alex had bought a business called CitizenSide. He'd bought it out of bankruptcy court in France. And citizen side was a lot like File Mobile in that it took user-generated content, but it was a content play. They would get content from their audience of 150,000 citizen journalists, wow. and they had an editorial team, and they would send out news calls to their audience saying, we're looking for photos of this subject or videos of this subject, and then they would send the content back. They would sell it to the press organizations. Okay. So uh, AFP in France, like CP in Canada, would then distribute it and sell it to all the newspapers and TV networks around France and and Europe, for that matter. Um, He actually, turns out, we had won this business with Network 10 in Australia. And unbeknownst to us, we were competing with CitizenSide. Okay. And Alex Hartman is, he's like, he's a very well-known figure in Australian tech circles he knew a lot of the the players in these media companies, and that the business was his in the bag. Because who are these people? <laughs> yeah, and 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 he lost it to us. And uh, you know, to Alex's credit, uh, he you know he thought our technology was better than theirs, 
And it, in particular, we're able to put our software platform anywhere there's an Amazon instance. We put it in Australia for Network 10 because they didn't want to upload big files back to America. Sure. And he ended up um, coming to see us. And I remember that meeting. He came into our office, literally walked into our office in May, and kind of it, it seemed like a partnering type conversation. But by the end of it, he said, look, I'm going to give you guys an offer. Um, we then um, got uh, our investment banker to see if we could round up a couple others. Um, we talked to a, a couple other companies. We had two other interested parties. And over the course of uh, three or four months and two or three different offers, we had a letter of intent signed early September with New Zulu. We loved their vision. They were going to take this software we'd built and become and power this media company called New Zulu. And it was a global company. Um, we're going to keep all the troops we had in Toronto. It seemed like a, it, it really was um, you know, a great deal for us. It was 100% cash up front. Uh, and we signed a deal October 22nd. Uh, and ultimately, the deal was completed February 6th of 2015. And ever since, I've been, I've been working as the chief technology evangelist at New Zealand. Traveling the world. Traveling the world. Just like you did when you were swimming back in university. That's right, although a, a, a little farther afield. A little, yeah. <laughs> and maybe with a suit on this time. Exactly. Well, I had a suit on then. Yeah. Swimsuit. Swimsuit. That's right. That's right. If there was... Um, you know, one piece of advice that you could sort of give to somebody, you know, whether somebody's already an entrepreneur or somebody's just starting off or somebody's graduating, you know, you know what would it be? If there's just one, one sort of nugget you'd want to leave. Yeah, I, I think it would be that it was something I realized when, like when I was growing up, I always had adults tell me when I was swimming, oh, you're gonna, you're going to be you're so fortunate that you're, you're doing this. It's going to really help you when you're an adult. And I remember thinking, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> and, but I, at the same time, people would say, well, what are you going to do with, with, with swimming? Like, are you going to be a phys ed teacher? Yeah. And it, it just kind of occurred to me after I graduated from university that if I just put, if I worked as hard at something or found a passion I had, yeah, and worked really, really hard. That because that's all swimming was was a passion, and I worked really hard, and I was successful. I needed to go and find that passion, and that's what my twenties was about was trying to find a passion. Ultimately, I found that passion in digital technology. That's awesome. I'm glad that came around. I'm glad the internet came around because I don't know what the hell I'd be doing. I w I've got a geography history degree. You'd be traveling. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be traveling. You'd be traveling. Steve, thanks a lot, man. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I look, enjoyed chatting with you, man. Yeah, look forward to uh, some of your more travels. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks.